This is an echo from the past, a rerun, if you will. And in this way, new listeners can catch up and old listeners can reminisce about the past. Everybody wins. And in this episode, released on the 11th of March 2015, my guest is musician, explorer and environmentalist Matthew Lean. Enjoy. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. This is episode number 22. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode I'll be talking to Matthew Lien. Matthew is a creator of music inspired by life on earth. Matthew often embarks on expeditions into extreme wilderness, from the Arctic to the tropics, capturing sounds of nature which he weaves into his music. His first international release, Bleeding Wolves, became a multi-platinum record in Southeast Asia. And he's also been appointed ambassador to Aboriginal culture for his efforts to promote indigenous and traditional culture through music. In 2011, Esquire magazine's China edition named him Man of the Year for his environmental accomplishments. So thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. It's my honor and a pleasure. I'm glad we could connect. Cool. And where are you at the moment? Right now I'm in Taipei, Taiwan, in my, uh, in my home studio. I have a, a studio here in a separate area and then a studio at home. And I'm working out of my home studio today because it's just generally a, a more personal feeling, which is what I think we're looking for today. But you're originally from Canada. I'm originally from, yeah, I'm based out of the Yukon Territory. And even though most of the time over the past decade I've been abroad and a lot of that time here in Asia, I'm still based there. My record company is there. I've got a lot of family there. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, Taiwan has become a second home, but my heart definitely resides largely in the Yukon Territory. And it's pretty funny because I, I didn't know this. I, I uh, did some extra studying of you before this podcast and I realized that you're very big in Taiwan. Almost like that song, Big in Japan, <laughs> big, in, big in Taiwan. I'm big in Taiwan because Taiwanese tend to be small. So I'm, you know, I, I appear very big in Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> there was, it was ironically, you know, it was an album that I produced, which was uh, inspired by the Yukon government's Wolf Kill program. They had a program back in the early 90s to uh, cull wolves in a certain area, and their goal was to uh, reduce natural predators so that they could increase opportunities for big-game trophy hunting. And I was so opposed to that, and we, myself with a lot of environmentalist friends, we opposed this. Lots of protests for a long time, but... In the end, the government proceeded with their plan and started killing wolves using aircraft in the winter. And uh, when they started doing that, I mean, I was, I was heartbroken. And I wasn't a well-known musician at the time, so, but music was still my, the way that I expressed myself. And so I created an album called Bleeding Wolves. And that album was instrumental in bringing more pressure on the Yukon government to end that wolf kill program. That album also wound up in the hands of a distributor here in Taiwan and mainland China. 
And, you know, for some strange reason, the album, which was, it has a lot of mixed kind of world music, music styles in it. Uh, it's largely instrumental, but the album took off like wildfire. And within a year, it was registered multi-platinum. And, um, and it kind of created an opportunity for me over here as what the media referred to me as an, an eco-musician to continue producing music that focused on culture and environment uh, and and I really fell in love with with Taiwan's own environment and cultures. So this uh, that's basically what happened. And so it's interesting that here I've come full circle now with the Headwaters album, which once again is inspired by a plan which I think is, you know, very very bad. Once again from the Yukon government of the day, and once again aimed at causing a lot of pain and suffering. Uh, to the natural environment and Yukon First Nations culture. So what what is the plan they they want to do? Well, the Yukon government currently uh, is very pro-development minded. They're pro-mining, pro-oil and gas, pro-fracking, and they are not at all very sensitive to uh, Aboriginal, in, in my opinion, to Aboriginal culture or protecting the environment. So they've looked at a huge region of the Yukon, which is known as the Peel River Watershed. This watershed consists of six tributaries, six incredibly beautiful river valleys. Each river flows north up into one mighty river called the Peel River. And the entire watershed uh, is really undeveloped. So there's no roads up there. There's very few people up there. It's a, a paddler's paradise. And there's a lot of First Nations Aboriginal history up there. And the Yukon government is interested in opening that area to uh, development, industrial development, oil, gas, fracking, mining, which would involve putting in roads into these valleys and, and really changing the area forever. Um, for the first time in my history in the Yukon, the public is largely opposed. 85% of the people want the area protected. And pretty much all of the First Nations that would be affected by this want the area protected. There's a process uh, which is uh, a part of, the, part of the, a settlement. It's a legal process uh, as a result of a settlement that occurred between the Aboriginal groups in the Yukon and the government. The government must negotiate in order to make any significant changes to traditional lands up there. And instead of completing the negotiations, when the government realized that they weren't going to get what they wanted, they walked away from the table, and behind closed doors, they developed a plan which calls for development in 85% of the Peel River watershed. And this has caused the public and the First Nations to be just stunned by you know, the lack of good faith between this current government. And, and the people of the Yukon and the First Nations of the Yukon. When I say First Nations, I'm talking about the Yukon's indigenous people. That's how they refer to themselves. So um, that was really the inspiration for the album I've just produced called Headwaters, Music of the Peel River Watershed. I've been in that area many times over the past 20 years, uh, and so I know the area well. But when I recently you know, became aware of the government's intentions and what I think is pretty poor behavior, that's when I decided to to go back into the area with some really good friends and create an album that was purely dedicated on celebrating the beauty of that watershed in, in hopes of you know raising awareness about this. So this um, 
what's happening at this headwaters? Is that what it's called? The headwaters area or what do you what do you call it? We call the whole the whole river system that's at stake here, we call that the Peel River watershed. And I asked uh, an Aboriginal elder, a friend of mine, uh, what they call that, all those rivers up there that feed the Peel River, the whole Peel River watershed, do they have a name for that? And, and using his Aboriginal language, he said the name was Chutlit. Chutlit is a word in Gwich'in, and it translates to the word headwaters. That's why I named the album Headwaters, because I, I really want to embrace the Aboriginal history and the culture that's also at stake. Is any of this related to this Idle No More movement I've heard about in Canada? I think that you could roll it into that, but um, because I think what drives that movement and what's driving people with respect to the government's behavior here is probably similar. I think there's a general kind of a, an uprising of, of uh, empowerment of the people with respect to the behavior of, of the government and corporations, uh, you know, people realizing that, wait a minute, you know, we elected you. And the funny thing is in the Yukon, this government was not elected by a majority by any stretch of the imagination. It was a split vote. Uh, and so they were elected just barely over a third of the, of the electorate elected this government. So they do not have a mandate that they can claim uh, from the majority of the electorate to disregard the majority of the electorate and do what they want, claiming that, you know, they're elected because they weren't elected by a majority at all. So while this isn't, I think, directly involved with Idle No More, it's, um, it is probably of the same spirit to where people are simply not going to stand by and, and let this kind of thing happen. What, what was it that made you get interested in indigenous culture? You know, I've, I've lived my whole life sort of by following the, the doors that open to me and following my heart. And my heart really resonates with uh, indigenous culture anywhere that I'm at, whether that's in the Yukon Territory or other places in Canada or in the United States, where I've been very involved with the plight of John Graham, who was wrongly convicted of the murder of Anime Aquash, and this involves the American Indian movement and the uh, 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 an incident at Pine Ridge and and uh, Wounded Knee in the seventies. But that's that's probably a whole other conversation we can have. And then here in in Taiwan, I've been very involved with the the indigenous cultures here, and I feel there is no separation between indigenous culture and the natural environment. So my my passion for nature is perfectly in harmony with my passion for indigenous culture. Uh, I see them as inseparable, and, uh, and I feel that they are both, you know, kind of potentially innocent victims in the wake of a horrific movement of capitalist, corporate, and government-driven, in many cases, uh, greed and, and, you know, there's a lot of, when, when I look at how the world has changed in my lifetime alone, it's exponential, the loss of culture, indigenous languages, and environment. And when I look at the, the, the future of children, you know, and their children, I, it's difficult to perceive how such, such rapid destruction of culture and, and nature could possibly be sustained if we're to have any kind of a future for children. 
So I think, uh, I think that indigenous culture and nature, there, if there was anything that could capture the heart and c- make you want to come to the aid of what is beautiful, good, and right, and at, in, in danger of being harmed, uh, I think that it is both indigenous culture and nature. Yeah, I, I've had direct contact myself with indigenous culture in, in the Amazon and in, in Africa, not in Asia, or um, not really in America either. I, I once, when I was a tourist in the US, I visited a reserve, but it didn't really feel like I came in contact with indigenous culture. It felt more like a stage show or, you know, like it didn't feel like real. But... Um, uh, I think all indigenous cultures all over the world, they're very similar in a weird way. Even the language, even though they're different languages, they still have the same kind of sound uh, to my ears. And I think it's very fascinating. It is fascinating. I see a lot of similarities when I'm here in Taiwan with... with, A lot of people don't even know that Taiwan has several uh, indigenous groups here that are totally separate and apart culturally, ethnically, from the mainland Chinese that have, uh, you know, various groups of mainland China that have come and occupied Taiwan for hundreds of years and and currently as well. They're more part of the Austronesian ethnic groups. And uh, I see many similarities between uh, the the cultures and the people and, and, as you say, even the languages and certainly the attitudes with uh, Aboriginal people in Taiwan, as I do with First Nations groups in, in Canada. And uh, in Taiwan, I also saw on your website that you're making some sort of TV series. Uh, because of my my uh, sort of stature, my position here in, in Taiwan in particular, uh, there's been lots of opportunity for me to, to create uh, not only music, but also television programming, uh, which you know, celebrates, again, celebrates and draws attention to the value, the importance and the magnificence really of, of indigenous culture and the environment. So I have been the host and kind of the co-creator of a television series here. Two, we did two series um, uh, or two seasons rather. And the program was called Traveler's Kitchen and it focused on indigenous food. And so through the food, I'm able to, you know, discuss a lot of other issues, including, you know, the environment, the local environment, issues facing the environment, issues facing the culture. You know, by, by celebrating really any aspect of a culture, you can then touch on so many things and, and broader ramifications, you know. So it was, a, it was a great program. I really enjoyed doing it. And after two seasons, I felt that I'd, I'd made a really good contribution in, in, uh, on that end of things, but wanted to get back to the music front because when you're when you're doing this kind of a program, you're traveling really into remote mountainous jungles, and and it, it takes a tremendous amount of time to produce uh, 26 episodes. Uh, so I, I've I've taken a break from that for now, and I'm I'm focusing back on the music thing for right, right now. Is it, is it in English or is it in Taiwanese or what's the language? The well, the languages in Taiwan, the official languages are primarily. Mandarin and Taiwanese and another large ethnic group called the Hakka people. But there's about 20 different Aboriginal tribes in Taiwan. I think the government still only recognizes 14 or 15 of them, but they, they add one every few years as, as they you know, raise their voices louder and louder. 
And this is the result of Taiwan being colonized. First, the Japanese came here and and they, you know, tended to group the, the Aboriginal people into larger groups than than the individual tribes should have warranted. And then with the, the mainland Chinese retreating to Taiwan under Chiang Kai-shek in the 50s, then they, they further lumped them all together and disregarded smaller factions. But in the last, you know, 20 years, these Aboriginal groups have been uh, very vocal and adamant that they be recognized as their own independent tribe. So currently there's about 15, there's realistically should be about 20, um, and they all have their own language, and even every village has their own customs, you know, cultural peculiarities, their own take on food and, and dance, and so it's Taiwan, in my experience, you know, for, for being a, a quite a small island, it's about the size of Vancouver Island, Taiwan has the highest density of cultural diversity of any place I've ever been in the world. Then there's also the, the, the environment. You know, the, Taiwan has mountains that get up to 4,000 meters, and the Kiroshio Trench, the, the deep-sea trench that, that runs alongside Taiwan and, and the ocean current that goes up to Japan, that gets down to 4,000 meters deep. So you're talking about a topographical rise from that deep-sea trench to the highest mountain of Taiwan of 8,000 meters. And this really dynamic uh, topography has resulted in some incredibly... Uh, diverse and thriving ecosystems, which then in turn support a, a, a tremendous amount of Aboriginal culture and other cultures, you know, that follow the fish and the the, the thriving on-land ecosystems. So, you know, the, the topography, the nature here is really host to these cultures and the reason that there can be such a cultural diversity here in Taiwan. And, and you always incorporate nature into your songs or your, your albums, like you sample yeah right i i i kind of see i see the the you know anywhere as being a potential recording studio so i've invested a lot in field recording equipment in the last uh 3 years i've been investing a lot in what's called binaural recording which is a kind of 3D recording that you can use with a microphone that looks like a human head and the microphones are basically where the eardrum would be of that human head and it can record sound the way the human perceives sound because the microphone has all the physical properties. And then when you listen back on earphones, you really feel that your ears are in that environment. And the reason I've invested in that so much recently is because more and more people are listening to music with their iPhones or their, you know, their, their smartphones using earphones. So the, the time for binaural sound has really arrived. And, and I often get asked about incorporating natural sound with music, and I, I kind of feel that it's a funny question, really, because, you know, what is sound and what is music, and why not incorporate any sound that we hear that is inspiring, that, that, that invokes an emotion, a feeling? Isn't that why I record, a, say, a nylon string guitar playing some really beautiful, sorrowful melody or the sound of a loon? You know, I mean, both of those things can convey powerful emotion. So to me, it's it's all music. And you also have on this Headwaters album, you have elders speaking. Right. Headwaters, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, speaking with elders in that watershed because I felt, you know, the, the, the music itself is not uh, indigenous music. It's, it's my own composed music and then the musicians that I've pulled together in, in what we call the Wildlands Ensemble 
I did choose specifically to to include a fiddler in that because the Gwich'in people, they love fiddle music, and I wanted them to really enjoy this. But because, you know, it's really, it's their home we're talking about, I felt it was really imperative to to incorporate their own, you know, perceptions and and fond reflection on the value and the history, their own personal history there, because we need to remember that for those of us that are not indigenous, it's easy to look at a wilderness area and see a really beautiful wilderness area. And that may be reason enough to protect an area. But what they see, you know, when, when I see a river, I see a beautiful river. When they look at a river, they see Broadway or Fifth Avenue. I mean, that was their waterway that they used to traverse those areas and they know exactly where their great-grandparents are buried or where a child may have been buried and, and stories that are heartbreaking and inspiring. Those, those areas are their living history. And I really hope I can find a way to convey that through this album, for example, so that we can value the area for what it really is to so many people and take that into account when we want to consider issues such as economic development and industrial development within a pristine watershed. We need to remember that we are tampering with one of the world's last remaining wilderness regions, but also we're tampering with living memory, history, cherished memories, the most cherished memories, just as if we were going to go into the, the graveyard where where my grandparents were buried and dig that up and put in an oil well that may not really be necessary. You know what I mean? I was thinking we were going to listen to a song from, um, from the headwaters now, and uh, the song is called Sanctuary, and it fits a bit with what you just said, I guess. Uh, but is there anything more you can say about this one? Sanctuary was, you know, when, when I was out there for three weeks, uh, the album, the, all the songs on the album were composed uh, while paddling 550 kilometers of, of canoeing down these rivers and uh, using about three weeks of time out there. Every day I had different experiences, different perspectives. Sometimes it was my own point of view. Sometimes it was observations. Sometimes it was a, a First Nations story or information I've heard about from First Nations elders about the area. In the case of Sanctuary, the song was composed because every day when I was out there, I was seeing, you know, mothers of babies, these animals with their little families out there, desiring to raise them within a healthy, clean, pristine, and safe environment, just as you and I would want to. And so, you know, not only from the First Nations point of view, that this is a home for families of families of families throughout generations of history, but it still is home, not just to indigenous families, but also very much to every species of animal out there. And that's what led to the, the, the song, the inspiration for the song Sanctuary. Oh yeah Did you know That you are the one Who defines All I've become Who there is nothing That you do not know Of all I have hidden Of all that I show All of the questions and all the ideas that inform my courage. 
dungeon foster my fears Poignantly mute Leaving only the feeling I have surpassed all That I was believing So when we meet There comes a silence There comes a peace Unto every horizon Though I am one I'm not alone Sanctuary, I am the result of all those before, and I am the promise of all that's in store. So I give thanks to all that is living and all that has lived in this infinite giving for something more. Not desire what I require is what I'm receiving. So when we meet, there comes a silence, there comes a peace unto every horizon. Though I am one, I'm not alone. Do it. 
You are interested in uh, Zen Buddhism. Yeah, well, I would say I'm interested now. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't really. Uh, I've kind of lived my life aware of and appreciative of uh, spiritual beliefs all over the world, but not zoning in to any one in particular until about five years ago. What attracted you to this particular one? What attracted me to this particular one was the one who was rolling it out. And his name is Master Miao Chen. And he is an enlightened master who is using uh, uh, his form of Zen Buddhism to uh, roll out his, his practice in the world today. And, and as I've said, you know, I've been exposed to lots of different spiritual beliefs and religions. And I've, because I've always been a spiritual person, uh, which is a funny thing to say, you know, I mean, we are spirits, you know, what is a spiritual person? What is not a spiritual person? We're all spiritual, right? So, so my, my belief and passion uh, about spirituality has, has brought me into contact with different gurus and, and different, you know, ideas, but none of them really resonated with what I feel intuitively to be true for myself and what I what I see in the world, what I feel is my path, until I found this master and listened to what he was saying the truth was, the purpose of life on earth and what it all means and why it's all here. And and prior to coming into contact with him, my work uh, focusing on environmental and indigenous you know, music was leading me into a pretty... A negative state of mind because I, I just I couldn't see the the hope and the future of it all and I was I was getting quite distraught by the condition of the world and and just feeling like the bad guys are winning and I was feeling super angry towards corporations and the consumers that support them and super angry towards governments and the electorate that elects them if they are indeed elected and that puts me at odds with over half of the people in the countries that I'm involved with. So that's not a good place to be, not a healthy place to be. And and I was starting to believe I needed to create music that could be shocking and, you know, take field recording equipment into a field hospital to record children in distress and, and uh, incorporate that into really sorrowful music and, and, break the heart of the person listening the same way that my heart was breaking. And, and this 
idea, uh, which I believed had become my calling, was really tearing me apart. And I didn't even realize how destructive my own perception of the world was becoming until I came in contact with this master and listened to what he was saying, and more importantly, began practicing a special kind of meditation that that he was offering. And uh, he basically challenged me, as he does everyone, to say, you know, you can try this for three to six months, and if you don't feel the change, you know, carry on. Don't you don't you can walk away and of course i could walk away anyway but but i thought well i've got nothing to lose and i really feel something in my heart about this and so i began the practice and it absolutely transformed me it kind of removed the cloud cover around my heart and restored the light you know that should be shining brightly within us the the love you know the compassion and i rediscovered my the flame that is the source of music, which has within it the power of love and the, and, and the power of compassion. And I'm glad I did because when I went out onto the, onto the, uh, the wind river and the Peel river within the Peel river watershed to create the headwaters album, I was very deep within this practice already. And so I was able to view that environment and the entire situation from a very different point of view and be able to compose music that was, I think, uh, more true to how we should view life. I mean, I'm not a, I don't want to preach. I just want to share. And I hope that if I'm sharing from the right place in my heart, that that resonates with others and somehow uh, a healing can occur because I believe music has that power. Yeah, and it's it's true also that when you feel negative or when you have a lot of darkness, it it can feel very powerful. Like anger can you can feel very powerful having anger, uh, but then once you reach the point of having a lot of light in your life, you realize that that darkness or that negativity was actually not as strong as the light was, which is million times stronger. So you realize how weak that other person was that's that's how i i felt when i went through a similar thing yeah you're you're absolutely right you know it's uh it's understandable why there is anger i think i think anger often comes from an inherent compassionate nature but anger isn't the right you know way to express it it's kind of a mutated response uh, but when we don't have any understanding, for myself anyway, when I, when I didn't have an understanding that worked for me as to why there was so much suffering and what could I possibly do to bring any significant change to the world, you know, uh, w- without that under- understanding, anger seemed to be my only, my only viable response. And, uh, but what I, what I really came to, to realize is just as I, 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 I so deeply desire a pure natural environment and a pure home for the beauty of indigenous cultures that when we don't take care of our own inner heart and we allow that to become polluted by our own independent perceptions and the anger that can come from all that, when that gets toxic and polluted, then we haven't got a hope to really be contributing much of anything valuable to the world at large. Um, you said that you spend a lot of time in, in Taiwan at the moment. 
do you speak the language yourself also? Yeah, I speak uh I speak pretty functional Mandarin. Uh when I know what it is I'm I need to be talking about, I find all sorts of peculiar ways to string the language together to get my point across and people typically understand what I'm trying to say. Um and I've picked up enough of some of the other languages to be to be polite and humorous, you know, to be able to cuz people really really love it when you can say something in their language it demonstrates a kind of respect and even when you're using it slightly incorrectly or your pronunciation is kind of bizarre they it's just it's fun and and it creates a bond so uh like the 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 tv series i was hosting here on indigenous foods i was using using primarily mandarin uh within that program uh, and that's it's easier to do when you're a tv host because you can prepare what it is you want to be saying and talking about. But it's really, you know, the Headwaters album project that I've just released and the concerts I just had in Canada and that we plan to have in the future, it's a real pleasure to be doing that again because I can speak English in concert on stage, which I haven't done much of in the last, you know, 15 years of performing so often over here in, in Asia. So it's a real it's a real pleasure to be able to speak my own language and express myself uh, freely because it, it is, a, it's a bit of a challenge to be existing artistically within a, within an environment that's speaking another language than what you're familiar with. Was the process of making Headwaters a long one or? Headwaters took, yes, a long time to create, uh, at least to result in an album, uh, which is a very good thing because originally there was no album intended Originally, it was a friend of mine, Peter Mather, who's a fantastic photographer. I've I've been a friend of his since he was first getting started. He was involved in the earliest river trips we did as part of a, a multimedia concert series we would do every year that focused on different different rivers to try to celebrate and create awareness of endangered uh, indigenous cultures and wilderness. Uh, so Peter is a good friend of mine, and he called me and asked me if I'd like to join him because of the current climate, that the threats facing the Peel River watershed. And our plan was to go up there. He would photograph, and his photography is amazing. He's contributed to National Geographic magazine, and he's a member of the Confederation of, of Conservation Photographers. And so his work is stunning. And I'd invested in, as I mentioned, in a lot of really great field recording equipment, and I felt that my state of mind and my state of heart was really ripe for approaching something like this. And our goal was to create a multimedia concert to be staged at the Yukon Arts Center, which was uh, strategized to, to, to take place just before a critical moment within this process when the government was accepting uh, public input before it released its new uh, develop behind closed doors develop a plan for developing the Peel River watershed. So our concert was really a part of the strategy of raising uh, a, a swell, a groundswell of, of, of support in favor of protecting the watershed. Um, but the concert itself took place several months after the river trip. So I had all the time on the river, three weeks out on the river to compose and then several months to edit the sounds, compose, you know, detail out the composition, and then rehearse the musicians and stage the concert. When we staged the concert, I really felt that this should become an album. And I, had a, I took about another year before that was ready to go ahead. And that was because primarily because my father was quite ill during that time. 
And uh, he was also the reason why I was deciding to record it, because his illness had me back by his side much of the time in Canada. And he really encouraged me to get on with the recording of the album because I was there in Canada. The musicians were there in Canada. And um, he was very supportive financially as well, uh, helping to kind of jumpstart the, the recording process. But all that time, you know, allowed for me to listen to the, the concert recordings, listen to those songs again and again and again, and allow the different uh, opportunities and, and the, the truest nature of the song. You know, songs are like, are like children, and, and you need to get to know them before you can really understand and realize their true character and what they require to be fulfilled. So when you listen to those songs again and again and again, even a rough recording from a concert reveals harmony lines and, and, and arrangements that, that should occur to, to lift that song to its highest potential. And so then I went to the, the first basic track recording sessions in Canada, in Vancouver, and recorded the bulk of the music there. And then I had another stretch of time before I was doing the final recording and mixing down in California, where I could listen again to the music and, and make sure everything was, was, was developing properly, fill in any holes that, that needed to be completed, and then eventually go to California and complete the album. I was working at a fairly uh, swift clip, actually, towards the end because my father's condition was worsening significantly. He had lymphoma cancer and uh, I really wanted him to hear the album in its completed form. And I, and the, the concerts were scheduled for one month after I was mastering the album. So he was also intending to be there at the concert. And I spoke with him the morning of the mastering session. That's the last day of the recording process when I was finalizing the album, I spoke with him that morning because it was his birthday. We had a long talk. And then during the mastering session, I got the phone call that he'd passed away. And on one hand, it was heartbreaking that he was not able to hear the completed album or attend the concerts. And yet, in another way, it was somehow so complete. Uh, there was like a circle that had been, a great circle that had been completed in that this was really, you know, his desire was that I complete this album. And my being able to talk with him the morning of the mastering session meant that, you know, I told him, this is, it's done today, Dad. It's all done. I'm finishing it finally. And I'll, I'll be heading right back, you know, as soon as it's done. And so when he passed away, he knew that I was, I was done. The album was complete. And then he left the world. Yeah, and maybe he, like, knowing that it was complete, he allowed himself to leave also like he yeah i i like to think that a, a friend of mine once told me that you know how how great that is if, if i could imagine being you know the father of my son and realizing that his work on his greatest you know musical accomplishment to date was complete and in his heart successful and that he was this very day putting the final touches on that album, which had so much of the father, the, the passion and the perspectives of the father within it. You know, I think that that must have been a, a, a pretty good time to, to say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I've heard it before also, artists, and when they finish something and they've also passed away, like when they feel they're done. So 
it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, I guess I, I better be careful when I'm crossing the street. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I really I really do feel that, you know, to this point in my life, this album is the, it's it's the highest accomplishment I've ever achieved as far as, you know, the perception, perspective, the artistic quality. You know Lonnie Powell, the, the drummer on the album project, and there's there's great friends that have contributed just masterful performances into the music, and I am you know, really honored to have shared the process and, and, and the final, you know, result with so many great, great brothers and, and sisters that have joined me on this project. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know Lonnie was on this particular one. Uh, I just knew he had drowned for you. Well, yeah, he wasn't on the, he wasn't on the river, but he's, he, as, as I think you, you knew, he was the drummer of the music and, uh, you know, when the, the drums and bass are the things that go down first when you're when you're multi-tracking an album, and so they really set up the foundation for everything that comes later. And Lonnie is just a beautiful soul, and and Paul Stevens, the the bassist as well, is they're awesome humans, human beings. You know, really also very spiritual people, and they just oh, they just they sunk so deep into the the intent and the spirit of the music, and really delivered up phenomenally moving, powerful, beautiful performances. And we were tracking the, their their music in Brian Adams' recording studio in Vancouver. The mixing console was the same mixing console built and custom designed by Sir George Martin, the producer of the Beatles. So we were using really fantastic microphones and equipment to capture these recordings in a great sounding room. And I was so excited to have them in that environment because their performances, their musicianship, their ability is absolutely worthy of, you know, the, the state of the art environment that we were working in. And I think in my opinion, as, as a producer listening back to the completed music, I'm, I'm really, really inspired and, and pleased and totally satisfied with the finished result. So if people want to check out your music or, um, your, um, upcoming, projects where where do they go well the best place is probably to the website which is matthewlien.com matthew with two t's m-a-t-t-h-e-w-l-i-e-n.com headwaters itself can be found uh through that website it's also on itunes uh if you and i i believe it's you can find it in spotify and any number of of music online music services so if you just search matthew lien headwaters or even if you can't remember my name headwaters and Peel, P-E-E-L, I'm sure you'll be, you'll be finding it easily out there. And hopefully uh, people will do so and enjoy it because it was meant for those that find it, listen to it, and enjoy it. We created it for you. Oh, cool. Well, let's finish now with the title track from Headwaters. Anything you want to mention about this song? Yeah, this song is, is, uh, is a really cool song. And I think the coolest part about it is that near the end of the song, you'll hear kind of a breakdown in the music where the music stops and I'm singing headwaters, whoa, 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 whoa. And then you hear several people gradually more and more singing along with me. That was recorded 
at the largest ever demonstration, a protest organized in front of the Yukon government building in the freezing winter. We had hundreds of people out in front of the government building and I had my 3D microphone there and I sang to the audience the Q track and recorded them singing it back to me for the purpose of integrating it into the album. And when I was in the studio at the, the critical moment, you know, of laying in those, those recordings of those protesters singing, you know, in support of the Peel, it just, it blended perfectly. And it was such a relief, you know, because I didn't, you never know if these things are going to work out. But the album really did have some kind of, some kind of destiny driving it. And uh, I think Headwaters demonstrates that beautifully. When you hear all those people singing together, they come in and then they sing right to the end of the song. And that's really the heart of the album is that within our passion, we together can bring protection and celebration to the wilderness and the indigenous cultures that make life on earth so precious. I will tell you of a wonder of a strange and special place, shouldered high up in the mountains in a most amazing grace. It is here among the centuries of stone against the sky where the sweet and silver waters sing a gentle lullaby oh oh she is stirring in the silence like the shadow of a dream then from silent to the swirling to the rushing of a stream Oh, this mountain is a mother Sending forth the very own Bringing life to all the planet More than we could ever know To every man and woman Every boy and every girl She will carry out her mission For to quench a thirsty world